0: Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number 1 adventure, nature and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes and Jason Lopez. Thanks for tuning in.
1: All right, we've got Drew Hamilton, Homer Alaska resident, not native, and I think you'll find out though in the coming conversation that Drew is all over the globe and doing some really exciting stuff with photography, guiding, uh, being out, just being able to take in some of these giant wildlife happenings that, that occur throughout North America. Welcome, Drew. Appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast.
2: Great to be here. Uh, longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs>
0: That's awesome. Where are you at right now?
2: so i have just coming back i'm making my way back to it's my my northern migration here i was down in uh the mountains of mexico for close to a month doing tours to see the uh the monarch butterfly congregation down there and so you got all the monarch butterflies from east of the rocky mountains migrate to this one little spot in mexico so go down there and hang out that's where i get my vitamin d for the winter And now Mm -hmm. I'm at my mom's house in Washington, where I've got, uh, up in Bellingham, on Friday, I've got a a photo opening at a museum up there uh, about polar bears. So shifting gears from microfauna to megafauna. uh, And then eventually I'll make it back to Homer, where I can start shoveling snow. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Have you heard a lot? Is there a lot of snow
0: up there this year? Well, there
2: wasn't a ton of snow uh, right (laughs) right up until I left. And I think a couple days after that, because I live, I actually live up on the hill uh, about 1200 feet up above Homer. So all the rain that falls in Homer falls as, as snow at my place. So a couple days after I left, they got like three feet or something like that. And <laughs> think I got to go get my truck out.
0: It's always an adventure. It's an expedition, right? So what, when does that put you back in Homer then? Probably a couple weeks well, so no, I I think I fly back on Saturday. So coming
2: up this weekend and getting back just in time for the start of the Iditarod, which is always a a fun time. They've had the Fur Rendez going on there in Anchorage. They I think I've missed the uh, the beard competition this year, oh, uh, but it's always it. the same guy that wins. It's all politics. It's who you know. <laughs> it's in the beard competitions. <laughs> but the start of the Iditarod is is probably the event that most Alaskans in South Central look forward to every year it's the
0: first excuse to kind of
2: get out hopefully it'll be a nice day go out see the dogs
0: and uh it's just it's just a fun time I've never got to do that but I'd really like to do that at some point
1: yeah I'd like to see the start and the finish but I don't I think Nome is a pretty hard place to get to around the finish
0: yeah because uh, it fills up
2: basically mm-hmm. I mean there's uh you know, you might be able to find a few square feet of floor to crash on if you know the right people. But other than that, you got to plan it a year, maybe a year and a half in in advance. Then a couple of years, they had one of the hotels burned down. So that uh, puts the pinch on hotel space.
1: (laughs) Yeah, for sure.
2: But it's great. Like, Nome, I'm I'm always a big advocate for people going to Nome, particularly birders. Uh, You know, they got the Siberian Blue Throats that go there. And then, uh, I mean, that's
0: the best place in the to, to access muskox yeah you can find it right outside town there and snowies too right snowy owls uh i've
2: i've never caught any there but i've never true confession i'm not uh
0: not much of a birder yeah me either <laughs> but i've always heard that it's a good place in the in the spring early summer and you'll, you can find some nesting snowies up there
2: that would make perfect sense. Like, you look at the environment, like, it, it seems like it would be perfect for them, but uh, I have trouble making it past the muskox. Right. Yeah,
1: for sure. So, Drew, give us a little bit of background on just exactly who you are. How'd you get to the point where you were photographing wildlife? Is that something that you grew up doing?
2: Well, so I grew up in Iowa, of all places, right, right in the middle of Iowa, and my parents owned a small-town newspaper. And so when I was a kid... Uh, keep me out of trouble. I had free run of the darkroom, and so I could go in. I d- I couldn't touch the uh, the new stacks of photo paper, but anything that had already been cut, I c- I was I could have at it. So I made a lot of like L-shaped collages and things like that. And then eventually, my mom, uh, who was one of the photographers at the newspaper, gave me uh, her old AE1, and I could go in. I could roll my own film. I could just. You know, have at it basically. And then, you know, took photography in high school. And then, then uh, I was out on the East Coast. I was going into international relations at American University. And I was sitting in a microeconomics class in a basement classroom with flickering fluorescent lights and peeling paint. I can, I'm conjuring it right now. I can picture it. And I said, you know, if I keep doing this, I'm going to end up in rooms just like this one uh, for the rest of my life. So turns out, Alaska is about as far away from Washington, D.C. as you can get. So I uh, hopped in a 1988 Jeep Wrangler, picked up a buddy in Iowa, drove to Alaska, and uh, was driving down. I put my last $17 in gas in my gas tank and drove down the Kenai Peninsula looking for work and ran out of gas in front of a, a fishing lodge. And we coasted in there and said, hey, you need any work? And it turns out they did because it's summertime in Alaska and everybody needs help and uh, they had a bear viewing camp and so they flew this was in 1999 Whew, 99 <laughs> that was just yesterday right <laughs> and so flew out to chinitna bay on lake clark national park and that was back when a, a big day in Chinit- or a big summer in chinitna bay we get 300 400 people over the whole summer uh, you go there now, it's it's quite different. But so went out there, and there was an old homesteader that lived out there and met him, and uh, that was the guy that I kind of learned the most about how to move, how to live around bears. Uh, the most bears I ever saw in his backyard, which is, of course, now Lake Clark National Park, uh, was 52. You know, you got this big sedge meadow back there, and you got 50 mm-hmm. bears spread out like bison basically that was the comment we get in the springtime particularly when they're grazing it's oh they look like a herd of bison and they kind of do um so from there i got a lot of on the ground experience with bears we'd run around you know the you'd have guests come in and uh you know they've got electric fence around the tent and they thought the electric fence is to keep the bears out but from the staff's perspective it was to keep the guests in (laughs) So you turn on the electric fence, then you got free run of the whole park. Because uh, everybody's <laughs> scared to death of the electric fence. And that's when you would go have your good times and learn a lot about bears. And that's where you, you, know, you make your mistakes, you figure stuff out. And uh, so from there, I got hired on by the Alaska Department of Fish and Game to work at McNeil River, uh, which is the largest congregation of brown bears anywhere on Earth. Um, it takes a special permit. You got to win a permit and a lottery just to set foot in there. They take 10 people a day, You camp out for four days. So I was out there for six years. And that was really where I, I launched back into photography because one of the projects they have is a photo ID project, being able to identify these bears through space and time. And um, so every day that we went out there, it was my job to photograph bears for 10, 12 hours a day. And That's sometimes, dumb. right. And it was a state mm-hmm. job. So, uh, you know, you're in a union, you got health care, you got all this vacation time. All the, it was, that's, that's the best job in bear viewing right there is working at McNeil River. And uh, so from there, you're sitting there for 10 hours a day trying to figure out how to, once you've documented the bears from all their angles and whatnot, claws, scars, colors, things like that. Well, then you're sitting there thinking, well, what if I slowed that shutter speed down or what if I tried this angle? And then it it kind of branches out from just not boredom, but just looking for something new for after, after all that. Mm -hmm. And then, um, from there, uh, I started on, um, one of our fish technicians would come out and say, Hey, you want to see some polar bears? You got to meet my wife, Annie. So she got me hooked up with natural habitat adventures and I started going to Churchill And then from there, I met people in Churchill who said, wow, he's got a lot of on-the-ground experience with bears. Would you like to branch out into on-the-ground stuff with polar bears? I said, sure. So a lot of it's just kind of uh, saying yes.
0: Mm -hmm. And being in the right place at the right time, right?
2: Right place in the right time. When you get to places like Churchill and and people just start, the opportunities that pop up just from being in some place like Homer or or being in some place like Churchill, it's pretty mind-blowing, some of the stuff that uh, people will ask you to do.
0: Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a pretty awesome – that's a great story. That's a good Alaska story too, right? I mean, <laughs> running, out going up there with no money, running out of gas, ending up right there. What's the guy's name that was the first ranger at, at McNeil? Is it Larry Allmiller? Larry Allmiller, yeah. Did you read his <laughs> – well, I'm sure you've read his book, the one – I just picked it up last year in Seward. In Wild Trust. And he has a similar story because didn't he just cruise up there in a Jeep? Kind of same sort of thing where he just ended up there and, and then it just kind of evolved from that. And he's the one who designed the pad and all this kind of interaction with bears and how to do it and how to, I mean, it's just a, it's an awesome. If you haven't read that book, it's well worth the read.
2: That, that's how we do it in Alaska. It <laughs> just kind of, you got a lot of part, smart people who, uh, who are there because they love it and you got stuff you got to get done and so everybody you call on every i mean larry was an art major he was in the army he was he was an art major he drew pictures of generals and stuff and somehow that translated into being the greatest bear viewing guide of all time right. i mean, he was out of mcneil for 32 he still he still goes uh he's retired now but uh i think he's going on 35 36 year seasons out at out at mcneil river and you think about for those who don't know, and McNeil River doesn't get a lot of uh, advertising. It's a program put on by uh, Alaska Department of Fish and Game, and they're not, uh, <laughs> they're not, they're not really into marketing. But, uh, I mean, it is. If you want to learn about bear behavior and you want to learn about it fast, um, that's the place to do it. Because, I mean, you'll be sitting there. The most bears I ever saw at McNeil Falls at one time was 78. So you're sitting there. There are no fences. This is the program that Larry set up. You know, you're, you're sitting there. You got 78 bears around you. There are no fences. You're just kind of casual. It, and you, you describe it to people, and they're like, oh, you're nuts. But when you're there, it, it makes perfect sense. Right. You know, it's, uh, it, it's hard to describe. And then there's just something powerful about having that much and and fitting so naturally into the environment. I would, I would put McNeil river up there with any high level ethical wildlife viewing operation in the world. Like it is, in a lot of ways, it's the most protected parcel of non-military land in the state of Alaska, just because it is so the human behavior is so tightly regulated. And I mean, you, you start to, You see all these behaviors, but you see them stacked on top of one another. And, you know, over the course of the day, I think the most bears we saw in a day was somewhere north of 100. And, uh, yeah, it's it's, it's a crash course in bear behavior for sure.
0: You said something earlier um, when you were going through your history when you first met that old timer in Lake Clark. And you said something about learning what not to do. Um, you know, after you turn on the electric fence and everybody's behind the fence and then you're out there there, I mean, it's not like you're out there running away from bears. You're just learning how to interact with these bears. And maybe you can describe some of that. I try to explain this all the time to people where, you know, you show them a picture and you're, I don't know, 20, 30 yards away from a grizzly bear or a brown bear. And everybody's like, Oh my God. And you're, you know, I, um, it's just so hard to convey that it's no danger. There's this, symbiotic relationship that is it's uh what's the word it's just hard to describe it's hard to yeah, describe
1: <laughs> especially yeah. when you're talking to people that photograph in yellowstone in the lower 48 being around those bears is a little bit different
2: yeah Whereas, it's definitely a do not try this at home right scenario and and really it comes back to when you watch bears interact with each other and you realize that, that they're excellent communicators. They will tell you exactly what is on their mind. And there's nothing ambiguous about it. Like they are up front. And it's, it's being able to decipher in an effective way because, because they only speak bare. So they have uh, you know maybe five words and so much of it is contextual. And being able to identify situations um, that you either need to be careful with or just remove yourself from uh, like if two bears are about to get in a fight uh you don't want to be anywhere near that you're going to start giving them a little more giving them a little more space it, it's about reading bear behavior and giving them what they want whether it's space whether it's if i mean it, it sounds unless you have experience doing this it sounds kind of weird but um um, sometimes they are looking for proximity. Um, it's a behavior called refuging. You frequently see it with, with moms and cubs. Like we've had uh, mother bears will stash their cubs at our feet while they go fish. And it's because the human behavior to them is more predictable. So they know we're not going to mess with their cubs. But they also know that no other bear is going to come through us we're we're basically a a human shield to them, and it's it's a relationship that's built over time. Um, you know, you don't you, you wouldn't let that situation come happen to a, with a bear that you are just meeting for the first time. Say, um, that's something that you get with experience, and like you've you've uh, for example, you know, because they they know individual humans, uh, and the perfect example is out at McNeil River. Uh, where I had been, I was there for six years and my boss, Tom Griffin, who's another legendary bear viewing guide, um, had been there for 20 years at that point. You know, he, he worked with Larry and, and, and then I, I was the new guy at that point. And there was this older dominant female, uh, that, uh, called waterfalls. And she's been, she was in the Disney bears movie. She's, <laughs> she's turned up in a lot of publications and with Tom, like I'd go out with Tom, but if Tom was there, she would roll right in front of you, pull your feet in, here she comes, she's just going straight line through. But if, if, if it was me or if Tom wasn't there, she would still do similar behaviors, but she would just do it a little further away kind of thing. So she's like, oh, checking us out. Tom's not there. I'll just take a little bit wider route. And it's not that we were interfering. With, I mean, she was still going right by. It's just a matter of, of her comfort level with the, uh, uh, with the, the, the makeup of the people that were there. And if you've seen it once, you've seen it a thousand times, you could have a highly habituated bear that's going to walk by you. And that's when Murphy's law dictates that somebody sneezes or, you know, somebody hits the zipper on their, on their jacket. And that bear's like, Oh wait, no, I'll just go a little bit, a little bit further away. So it really is more about managing people and you want them to be able to behave in that specific way that is going to be non impactful to the bears at all you want them to be as natural as possible and that's where you get the best photographs is you'll get the very natural you know you can still get the eyes but they're not necessarily looking at you they're they're completely immersed in you know they're focused on the fish they're not looking at the people they're looking at the fish and that's that's the natural moment that that I like my guests to be able to capture um, rather than having the bear just you know staring you down or or you know, because when they're the bear is looking at you, that means there's a photographer in the the area. Mm-hmm. But I, I strive to capture those moments where it's 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 just more more natural, like you're not even there, really.
1: I think that the the people management comment is probably the biggest issue that a guide would have to deal with, but it's also the biggest issue that you know, for instance, the Park Service has to deal with. A lot of the policies that are coming down in parks in the lower 48 are they're not necessarily due to what is stated <laughs> you know we we want to save the alpine um, flora but really it's hey let's keep people in one area so we don't just destroy the whole mountain and you know so the people management thing goes with uh, the wildlife it goes with you know just park policies park you know, areas in the park, keeping people away from cliffs where they're going to try to take the the ultimate selfie and end up falling off the back. I mean, you hear that more and more these days. It's, we've got to get this selfie. So people management is probably the biggest thing that they deal with. And as a guide, I would imagine that, you know, it's probably a lot easier to learn bear behavior than it is to predict how your, uh, your customers are, are going to behave themselves.
2: Well, and, and then it's also a new twist. It was real nice being out at McNeil River because you're the only folks for, you know, 200 square miles because you got the permit to go in there. But when you go out and you get people who are, you know, going to Katmai on their own or, um, you know, just not as, as, as up on, and not just bear behavior, but those specific bears because every bear is different. And so, like, for example, we were on this, I was doing a trip for Natural Habitat and, They've got a boat that cruises up and down the the Katmai Coast, and we're in this bay. It was just north of Geographic. Uh, We were one bay up, and uh, we're sitting there. and This mom and two cubs, two spring cubs, so the little ones, super cute, super tolerant. uh, We're sitting there watching her, and some other photographers moved in, and she went upstream. And so they, the other group was like, all right, we're going to charge up there. And they went following her and, you know, going up. And, and if you'd been there and, and been paying attention to the dynamic in the area, you realize that, you know, two bends up is where that big male has been hanging out. And I said, well, we're just going to sit here because she's going to be back in 15 minutes because she's going to run into that guy and bounce right back to us. And then sure enough, you know, they the group followed her up. 15 minutes. Here she comes. She comes wandering back. And we're already in position to get the shot of her with her cubs fishing in this pool. So like, it's it's all about understanding the bears in the area, understanding the behavior, and then um, preaching the mantra of patience. And so by hard charging and following her up there, they didn't get anything. Whereas if you just sit in one spot, if that's the worst thing that happens is you get to sit along the side of a river for an extra Mm -hmm. hour like hey you're doing all right um but it's 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 putting all these things together and then already being in position when she gets in so it's always harder you can't get into position if she's already there you can't get in there without upsetting something right? Your, your, your space bubble is going to bump into hers. There's going to be an unnatural interaction for a period. But if you're already sitting there and she can just roll in and say, yep. Okay. That's true. They're cool. Then she just rolls in natural as can be and no big deal.
0: I think that's something that needs to be, I mean, I don't think you can talk about it enough. The, the patient's aspect of what we do and I know everybody that is out there photographing wants that shot right and you're you're striving so hard to get that one shot that that you're proud of or that you can put on a wall or that you can show somebody and it if you're patient it'll oftentimes I find so I shoot a ton of video and I can't run around I don't like it's hard to chase I in fact I don't ever you know I just I'll look at a situation depending on whatever the species is and you try to set up and predict, oh, this might happen if everything is left alone and this animal's let to be doing whatever it's doing. My guess is this is what's going to happen. And nine times out of ten, it happens. And you're speaking to that exactly. It's And with you knowing, having that knowledge of a bigger bear, then... You know that that situation, and it's, it's hard because you got all these photographers that are sitting with you saying, come on, Drew, what are you doing? <laughs> but in, in reality, you're teaching that lesson that is so important for everybody to learn. Just have a little patience. And if you just give them their space, you're probably going to get that shot. Plus, get way more shots because you'll have that animal being in a natural state doing whatever it's doing that you're trying to get an image of.
2: And you can also compose your, your backdrop like you you've got that time to to set up and be emotionally prepared for what you hope is going to happen. You know, good photos aren't taken, they're made.
0: Mm-hmm. Like
2: if, if you if you do your your due diligence and you put in your patience and craft that image before the subject is there, <laughs> it's <laughs> you're just waiting for the talent basically. You're, you're the production crew and then the talent rolls in and boom, you're all set up just that easy. And really the best uh you know that you're talking about the preserve. You know that I had two guys on a camping trip out there this year. It was we were out there with Graham Purdy and Dave Sanford, two amazing photographers, hard working Like you get out in the field with these guys, and they put you through your paces. And we'd go out there, and we basically sat in the exact same spot for a week. Like we, we we went in, and I had done some advanced scouting, and I came in that first day, and I said, "Okay, guys, here's what I think." and they picked which of those ideas they liked and frankly you don't leave until you get that yeah we were we were in basically one spot for a week we did hide under some alders once to get out of the sun cuz it was so hot in alaska last summer
0: it's crazy right i try to tell people that all the time now you know we were out at katmai one year and it was 100 degrees and there were no alders and we were <laughs> setting up our tripods and putting our coats over our tripods and trying to lay in that shade but No, and I think you chose that. I mean, you gave them the option. You create. You guys are creating that shot. You're making that shot, and that is so important. I think people would be so much more happy getting that kind of a shot than having the butt of an animal walking away or, you know, an animal that is startled or an animal that just really doesn't know, hey, there's 10 people here, and I just don't know. I think I'm just going to go this way, and and nobody gets a shot at that point.
2: Yeah, well, and... And a lot of it's karma too. I'm a firm believer in karma. Like the more respectful you are, the more efforts you make to not necessarily blend into your environment, but to match your energy to the environment that's around. The wildlife responds well to that just because they, that's, the, those are the things that they're, they're sensitive to. And um, it just, it, it pays dividends in the end.
0: Mm-hmm. And long lenses help too. <laughs> talking about long lenses and we always like to talk with everybody everybody we talked with we like to highlight some of their equipment not that it matters but what are you using these days and what what do you feel like is the best kit for going out and doing this bear stuff
2: well so i fully recognize that my needs as a guide are completely different because when i'm carrying my kit I uh, I also have to have their deterrence. I also have to have first aid kit. I also have to have emergency clothing. I also have that, and that that adds up fast. And so I switched over to a micro four-third system uh, four or five years ago. Uh, I saw folks doing it like Eric Rock and uh, Justin Gibson and folks like that that I was working with at the time. And I'm lugging my stuff, and and they've just got this little you know, little setup. So I've gone through a few different versions over the years. And when I go out on any given day, I, uh, I only bring one lens and whatever lens I have, I need to make that work. Um, and so my go-to setup right now is the Olympus EM one X, um, with the, their 300 millimeter f4. So it's a 2x crop. So that's getting you out at 600 millimeters. And, and I've kind of learned that when a bear fills a frame at 600 millimeters, I should be working <laughs> That's not, for <laughs> me anyway, to put the camera down. And, uh, and it is, it is limiting, but I've really enjoyed shooting with kind of that semi-fast prime because it, it does force you to be creative with shots. And, and I know Ron and I had had some discussions about stitching photos in the past. Mm-hmm. And, and my, my love of stitching photos uh, kind of comes from my only zoom is my feet. And if you can't move your feet, you need to stitch them. And so when I sat down and said, okay, here are the things I need. I need portability. Like right now, my two bodies and my entire lens kit from 14 millimeters, 8, all the way up to, I can go up to 1,200 millimeters handheld with their stabilization system, but it all fits in the overhead compartment on a 737. Like that's, that for me, when you make a list of everything you actually need, for me, the Olympus system is what shook out. When I go do Aurora trips, because I've led a bunch of Aurora trips over the years, I did get a Sony uh, A7S II, just because I wanted to do video
1: <laughs>
2: of the aurora.
1: That's what I was going to ask. Are you doing any video?
2: Um, I do. Ironically, a lot of my income comes from viral video, uh, but I don't shoot that much video. I have the the ability to, but I don't. I don't really have an outlet for it. I don't feel because the the conservation work I've been, you know, now about half my time is devoted to volunteer conservation work, and. I think managing viral videos and things like that takes time that I just don't I just don't have right now.
0: Well that's a that's a fun system to have and and using that Sony with the Aurora is that the best camera out there at the moment for that sort of thing? I don't know anything about it. I well it's it's that it's the S2 which they've been teasing the S3
2: for too long now frankly. Sony if you're listening, <laughs> come on. <laughs>
1: But it's a, its about the I best found, low light setup you can get, isn't it? Even now,
2: even as old as it is, it's still right up there uh, for for low light. And at the time, it was it was kind of revolutionary because I was doing aurora trips in Churchill, Manitoba, at the time, where you know you're. Uh, you know, <laughs> I think the coldest wind chill we had was like minus 64, and we're out there. And uh, so, I did run into some battery life issues that I think the Sony is corrected in the threes, or maybe they're even on fours on some of them. So the battery life has gotten a lot better. But I still do like to bust out the Olympus. You know, it's everybody complains about oh low light this, low light that, but frankly, the colors on the Olympus that it renders are much more accurate than the I can I can take images right out of the Olympus and the colors are right and I don't have to mess around with them cuz Sony uh, tends to make them a little too neon for for my liking anyway. And then I was looking at lenses for it and uh, what I ended up going with, you know, cuz you had these these entry level and then you had like the the super expensive Zeiss and and stuff like that, but then there are these Rokinon Cine lenses. Mm-hmm. And just because it's a cine lens doesn't mean you can't take photos with it, and so I ended up getting um, their the Rokinon twenty-four millimeter, I think it's like a T one five, and then I also have their teen or sixteen to eight, I think. So I have one cine lens for the Sony, and then I have one regular, and it's all manual anyway. <laughs> so right, and then I've got my my Sony all rigged up that really it's just a couple buttons. Like I don't have any because battery issues are important. So no, no lights, no screens. I hit two buttons and I found that, you know, most people with Aurora, they shoot in full manual or what I do is with the Olympus, I would shoot in aperture priority mode and I would do, I would starting ISO at a thousand and then put your exposure compensation on plus two full stops. And then I'd, put on the intervalometer, because I'm helping people with cameras and stuff. I'm not there to take pictures. I'm there to help people take pictures. So I would just set mine up and put on the intervalometer. So it would just take pictures and my camera's sitting over on the side and I'm running around helping people. And then it's taking pictures on its own. But with the Sony, and I've noticed this on on both the Sony and the, uh, the D850s, that when people would come in, you tend to think, oh, I'll just crank up the ISO because I can. But what would happen is your ISO gets high enough that it's almost too sensitive and the camera starts picking up stuff that your eye doesn't see. And it'll turn like a distinct arc into a blur because it's, it's picking up all this diffuse stuff. So you actually have to back it off on your ISO a little bit. If you've got a camera that can do that, like the D850s or the the high end Sonys and things like that, back it off a little bit because, because it'll, it'll, it'll wreck your shots. I, I love filming Aurora. I haven't, haven't been able to do enough of that lately, but, uh, once you get used to the cold, then you can then you can do it. I run warm anyway, so.
1: <laughs> yeah, when we were photographing the eagles last spring on the Kenai, we had some aurora. Never made it far enough south to where we were at, but when we went back to Anchorage, it was there, and then all of a sudden the clouds moved in. It was supposed to be this beautiful night. We were going to get up, up as high as we could and try to get some shots, and then the clouds moved in, and that was that.
2: That's why Aurora is so tricky, you know, you, you're, yeah. you're looking at the places the, that are under the oval and you're looking at like in Norway, you're looking at Iceland, you're looking at Churchill, you're looking at Yellowknife. Well, people in Fairbanks will tell you it's Fairbanks, but it's actually just north of Fairbanks. Um, so then you cross-reference that with your, you know, clear skies and, mm-hmm. you know, where you've got open water, Norway and Iceland and places like that, you got to go for a week or 10 days to make sure you get a clear sky in there. Whereas you can go to someplace like Churchill or Yellowknife and you can do because they just have clear skies, you can do it in four days, kind of thing. Uh, but then you, you know, there are other things you got to figure like foreground. Do you want a fjord? There are no fjords in Churchill. There are no fjords in Fairbanks. You gotta go to Norway for that. You gotta go to Iceland if you want the waterfalls and things like that. Yeah. So it's, it's 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 make a list. Make it a list on your on your photographic expeditions and saying, just saying, well, what do I? actually want and when it, like with cameras like if i think a lot of people just want to reserve the right to shoot a basketball game at night or something like these far end of camera capabilities and when you sit down and think about it you really don't need all those bells and whistles cuz it's it's really a professional camera is whatever camera is in the hands of a professional, and they should be able to make, make that work.
1: That's very well said. And we've talked about each of us taking some lower-end kind of consumer models out and getting images with with those cameras just to demonstrate that, you know, it's not necessarily the camera in your hand that makes the shot, but the knowledge that you've got in your head. And that was very well said. I like the way you said that. Professional camera is the one that's in the hands of the professional.
2: <laughs> well, my iPhone says Pro on it, too, so… <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: the only thing I had to add to that, uh, Aurora conversation was it seemed like whenever I'd photograph Aurora, it would be in Denali and we would be in like September. And the hardest thing is, is waking up to check the skies throughout the night, especially since you've been going all day, you know, you've been looking for sheep or caribou or and you're just running on empty already. And then you're trying to wake up like every hour to check to see if it's clear. Number one. And then if you got Aurora going on number two, when I went to Churchill, that was a whole different ballgame. You're going during polar bear season, gets dark early. I mean, the Aurora can pop out at like seven o'clock at night. And it's like, this is awesome because you can (laughs) actually get some cool shots and you're not running your tank to the complete empty. You go out and do your Aurora and you're back in bed by like nine o'clock or whatever, (laughs) whatever the situation is. So what you said about coming up with your schedule or what you're after that is going to dictate where you have to go because we were using that old plane, that wrecked plane. And yeah, the, uh, Miss Pig and we were using those, uh, the cemetery out there. We did some up there. So that was kind of cool. It was something different, but you're not getting nature as much as you're just getting objects that were with the Aurora. Well, and what, so
2: what Churchill's got for foreground elements is, well, those rocks, well, crashed airplane. Um, I've hiked out. There's a shipwreck, uh, the MV Ithaca, out there. That, that that was a fun. We had a birthday party out there one year where we hiked out. and um, Like everything just came together. We'd hiked out there. Somebody brought cupcakes. By the time we got there, the cupcakes were frozen solid. So you're trying to, <laughs> you know, gnaw on this jerky-like cupcake. But then it was one of those Aurora shows. And with Aurora, you know, people all say, oh, the camera catches more than your eye. Right up. And I'll add to that right up until it can't like there are Aurora shows that I've seen that the camera can't capture because this night when we were out at the Ithaca, it was almost like you'd stuck your head in a chandelier and you got the shipwreck and you got the sea ice and everything around you is just ripping and dancing and, and you're seeing oranges and mobs and pinks and things like that. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's to the point where stopped and,
0: Just watch. Yeah. on my frozen cupcake. We had that same similar experience in Churchill where Missy had never seen Aurora. So, you know, they, our buddies we were with called and it's like seven o'clock and they're like, Hey, Aurora's out. Let's go. We all go out there and it's just kind of small little wispy stuff. It's cool. It's, it's the Aurora it's going on. And Missy was all disappointed. She's like, this is not what I see in pictures. And I'm like, well, hang on. I mean, you don't, you never know. Go with the flow and see what happens. And then out of nowhere, it just fires up. And it was that situation where just so much going on and they're whipping through the sky and doing all this stuff. And at that point, she was just totally blown away. In Denali, a lot of times, it's just that very, oh, so slight, you know, aurora that is just pretty predominantly green and you just don't get all those colors. It's still cool to see, but once you've seen the other end of the spectrum, it's it's mind blowing.
2: Well, and then Denali, I had so something that's on my radar. Uh, my buddy Justin Gibson and I are trying to set up a trip up to the you know the Sheldon chalet. Yep. Up on Denali. Yep. Doing an aurora trip
0: there. One of my buddies did that. He was on he camped on the Ruth Glacier. You know have you heard of Kenan Ward? Yeah. From the old days. I don't I think he does a lot of video. I don't hear much from him anymore, but early on back in the film days he was going up solo Doing Aurora up there, and it was pretty spectacular. But it's that deal where you got to spend ten days and hope the weather's <laughs> with you. And, but uh, he was able uh, to get some stuff. So
2: as long as you're dressed for it, though, that's the
0: uh, yeah. If you're prepared mm. for it, you can make it happen. Yeah. Actually, while
1: we're on the topic of Churchill, you know the the brown bears is what you kind of cut your teeth on, right, in mm-hmm. Alaska. And then you ended up going up and guiding with the polar bears. What was the biggest differences? that you saw between the two species and, and having to, uh, to kind of step up your game there?
2: Well, in terms of going up to see the, uh, the polar bears, it's just kind of, i just like to point this out that uh, Homer is at 59 degrees north. Churchill is at 58 degrees north. Mm-hmm. So I actually have to go south to see polar bears. And it just kind of is this mind twist thing. And, and I do like to point it out to folks in Churchill. Uh, you know, they've got this great Northern attitude that I love and I, I fit in well with it, but I always kind of just stick it out there that, Hey, I love coming down here to see your, <laughs> polar
0: bears.
2: um, but in terms of the differences on some level, uh, polar bears are a lot more subtle with their communication. You know, Churchill's had that congregation. It's a loose congregation, but you know, bears congregate on the shores there for decades now. So they, they have a bit more, uh, I would say, advanced communication system because they're used to interacting with one another, so they have to have a communication system in place. Uh, But it is much more subtle. You have to watch them closer to picking up what they're laying down, basically. And with the brown bears, like you're seeing them at their peak, right? You're seeing, when you go see brown bears fishing, say, in Alaska or out at Katmai Preserve, like they're business-oriented at that point. They have a job to do. When you go watch polar bears, they're, they're not, they're bored out of their minds. Like they're, they're Mm -hmm. waiting, they're waiting for the ice. And so they, you know, they'll check anything out. They've got, they've got a day to fill. They've got a week to fill before that ice comes in. And so they're just trying not to burn too many calories and, and make it until the, the sea ice shows up. So, um, they're quieter. It's, it's in terms of the like actual communication, it's almost like, uh, like brown bears speak Spanish and polar bears speak Portuguese. Yeah. Like there, there, there are some, some subtle differences in there that you do pick up on. And one of the things, um, given my experience at McNeil river and being so close to that many bears communicating all at one time is I would like to, I've been to Cactovic. I went and spent a month up in Cactovic uh, a couple of years ago, three, I don't know, time flies, whatever that was. And, uh, you know, the the goal there is to see them on the whale, you know, because mm-hmm. the villagers bring in a whale and, and then the polar bears clean up the rest. And the villagers got the whale the day after I left. So oh, gotcha. one of the reasons I wanted to see how those bears communicate in congregation and an intriguing thing up there is then the grizzly bears will roll in, And so you've got, you know, these twelve hundred pound male polar bears Getting along just fine on this on this whale carcass, and then you've got a barren ground, a three hundred pound barren ground grizzly that rolls in just like a cannonball full of teeth and claws, and you've got these polar bears falling all over themselves to get out of the way. And it really, you know, it it just drives home that with, with with the bears and how they interact with one another, it is all about attitude. One of the talks I give is about rank and hierarchy in bears. And just looking at how the biggest bears, you know, you see a big giant bear, and they're all bigger than we are, right? So any bear qualifies as a big bear. Mm -hmm. But when you see a truly large bear, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the alpha bear or the most dominant bear in the area because they're all individual personalities. And so you've got, uh, I think, one of the biggest bears I've ever seen at McNeil River. Um, He was a mellow. He didn't like to fight. He, and as a consequence, he lived nearly 30 years, but he was huge. Whereas some of those scrapper bears, like a smaller bear might be the alpha just because he's big on attitude. And can you roll in there and have, and bend other bears to your will without getting your butt kicked?
0: <laughs>
2: Cause the, the, the thing is you can go try to push the other bears around, but there's, there's always a bigger bear.
1: Right. Now you have a couple of projects going on. First of all, uh, Don Wilson, who's been on the podcast you know, in a couple different capacities, and you guys did a book together. Tell us a little bit about that project.
2: Well, uh, so that project kind of stems from the, the Pebble Mine Fight, which we'll talk a little bit uh, more about here in a little bit. And Don and I were talking, we met at McNeil River when she came out and kept in touch via social media and it's so easy to keep in touch with these with people these days. And I'd always admired her work uh, in the Laura 48. And she's the you know the queen of elk. <laughs> you know, she just does some some amazing stuff down there. And she comes to Alaska quite frequently and and does mm-hmm. stuff on the on the Alaska Peninsula and wanted to get involved with some conservation efforts in a fight specifically against the pebble mine. And we were kind of looking at our portfolios and said, hey, between us um, we've got a pretty comprehensive look at the, the Alaska Peninsula. She's got kind of the North Lake Clark uh, National Park area. She's got McNeil River. And I've got a lot of the Katmai Park and Preserve and McNeil Refuge and some of the other uh, obscure state lands in between. And so we just thought it would be really cool to put together a book that shows, one, all these different bears and highlights how different these bears are. And then highlights the variety of terrain and photographic opportunity that's available on the Alaska Peninsula. Because I think people say, oh, I'm going to Alaska to shoot uh, pictures of of brown bears. And you've got a lot of choices. (laughs) Really, mm-hmm. like, like you could, if you, if you were shopping around for for a place that you wanted to go see brown bears in Alaska, you could get this book and flip through and say, oh, I like what they do in the Katmai Preserve, or I like what they do at McNeil River, or I like Katmai, and. Choose your destination based on on the types of images that are that are coming out. And it's it's just been it's been one, it's been fun going back through the old portfolio and and saying, Oh yeah, I remember that day. <laughs> I am supposed to be pulling out photos for it. And then you go down the rabbit hole and say, Oh, I'll remember that. That was fun. Oh, I'll remember that. Oh, that was a good day. That was yeah. <laughs> and then and then you come across the pictures that that Don and I were out together and just looking at how you captured the scene differently. It's, it's kind of an intriguing collaborative process. And so proceeds uh, from the book, um, a portion of every sale does go to uh, a nonprofit I run called Friends of McNeil River, um, which McNeil River, we've mentioned a few times, is one of the best places in the world to see brown bears. Uh, But it's currently under threat. They want to put a, there's a a mine over on the other side of the mountains called the Pebble Mine, which is, we've been fighting this mine for 20 years, and and now it's come to a new phase. It's not permitted yet, but it's currently in the hands of the Army Corps of Engineers and the Environmental Protection Agency on whether they issue permits for it. But they want to put a road that goes uh, right through the best bear habitat in the world. They want to put a port and a power plant. A power plant big enough that it would power the city of Anchorage. Uh, so it was. it's a significant amount of infrastructure right in the middle of this bear habitat. You know, we can look at case studies from around North America that, one, bears and roads don't mix. And you're also going to have an influx of non-bear-savvy miners come into this area. You know, frankly, the things I worry about most are food conditioning. So you've got inexperienced people in wilderness areas where I do my bear viewing and my guests, and you've got inexperienced people providing food, providing access to traffic. A habitual bear is not by itself dangerous. A food conditioned bear, a bear that associates people with or as food is a highly dangerous situation. So one, they're putting my, uh, my livelihood and my guests and our safety at risk, and then the frank the fact that they're not doing their their due diligence on the science involved with this whole project so you know between the mine between the road and between the uh, the port technically that should be three that's three huge mega projects that should be their own environmental impact state. well the current administration has rolled all of them into one and then fast tracked it so they they shortened public comment period. They've uh, they've designed their studies about bears. Uh, so this is a new component. And they they said, well, we really only need to study bears three miles from the affected areas. So when I, as someone who knows the area, when I read their aerial surveys and they you read through and say, oh, we didn't see many bears, I know that if they'd flown over just one more hill they would have seen McNeil Falls. They, they have intentionally excluded the most bears. Like they, they've crafted it in such a way that they don't have to do their, their due diligence. And it will have huge impacts on the bear viewing industry. We, we've commissioned, a, for 20 years, this fight's been revolved around the, uh, the sockeye fishery in Bristol Bay, which is the last intact sockeye salmon fishery in the world. 60 plus million fish a year come back, it supports $1.5 billion a year, or it brings in $1.5 billion a year, 14,000 jobs, and you wanna put a copper mine, the, not just a copper mine, the biggest copper mine in the world, right at the headwaters of the Bristol Bay fishery. Bristol Bay shouldn't be unique. Bristol Bay, that type of fishery to everywhere from the Sacramento River all the way up used to have stuff like this, and what makes it unique is it's the last. And, you know, what's lost in this too, I think is the scale. You know, people say, oh, it's just another mine in Alaska. This is the largest copper mine in the world, where if you took all the mines in Alaska and you put them all in, in one place, this mine would be eight times larger, and it's in a remote area, and so there are power issues, there are water issues. It will turn the Alaska Peninsula and all this pristine wilderness and sockeye fishery runs and natural bear habitat and all that. It's going to turn it into a mining district, and it's a sulfide mine. So the, just the act of digging a hole introduces things to the air that creates sulfuric acid, and so you're going to have to maintain this forever. Like this is this is the Superfund site in waiting. Like we will be paying for this for years and years and years, well, well beyond our time. Like this, this is a forever. There's no going back from this. Mm-hmm. And you've already got this that produces billions of dollars. And if you just leave it alone, just leave it alone. It's just that easy.
0: Well, and it's it's the battle's been won so many times, and it just keeps coming back, right? It just won't stop. And isn't it a Canadian company even that is, who is the group that owns this? It's it is it is a Canadian company, uh, Northern
2: Dynasty Minerals, out of Vancouver, and really uh, most of the big mining companies aren't American anymore. Like, and this this company or this company has they're small. They're a prospecting company. They go in and they find uh, deposits, and then they they bring in larger partners. And if you look at the history of this project, um, some of the biggest mining companies in the world have come and gone through this, like Rio Tinto. For example, a huge mining company. When they backed out of the project, they uh, they released a statement saying it's too risky. They didn't they didn't categorize that risk whether it was environmental risk or business risk. Plus, it's a remote area. To get your money back out of it, uh, it just doesn't it doesn't pencil out. Like there there are technologies in their, in their statement, they say, Oh, we're going to do this. We we're but we'll invent that technology. We're not, a, we don't want to be a Guinea pig here. Like we want, yeah, we don't even want to talk about it.
0: Right. It not don't even want it to get that far. Tell me if, isn't there another project too, that's near Lake Clark that is a mine. Yes. And does these, are these, are they married in any way? Or are these two completely separate projects?
2: It is, is this one kind of interconnected crappy political mess. So, um, let's see, there's the Johnson Tract in Lake Clark National Park, and it goes back to before Lake Clark was a national park. So it goes back to the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, which is where (laughs) <laughs> now, we've definitely taken a turn. We're no longer talking about cameras. That's fine. I think it's Alaska important history. to
0: talk about this stuff and people need to know.
2: So when they were building the pipeline, there was a, a deal that went all the way up to Congress and it was the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. So in exchange for roughly a billion dollars and uh, roughly 9% of the total area of the state of Alaska, the natives, could, which the natives could pick, they created native corporations. So we don't we don't have traditional reservations like you'd have in the lower 48. There's one or two. But most of them are native lands owned by native corporations that are divided up regionally, and then there's another one for uh, unlanded natives. But so when they were picking the land, one of the native corporations picked the Johnson tract specifically for its mineral riches, right? And then after that, Lake Clark National Park popped up around it. So you've got this inholding in the park that is basically mineral rich, and it was <laughs> it was being pushed like they they wanted to. The, the current administration is friendly to, to projects like this, and it would require a road, it would require all this infrastructure, and it would basically disrupt um, goings-on in the park. Um, it has kind of fallen to a lower priority because the guy that was pushing it has now been installed as the uh, commissioner of the Department of Environmental uh, Conservation in Alaska, which is now being head, headed by a mining guy basically like it's 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 corruption all the way to the top
1: is that at the state level or is that at the federal That's at
2: the state that's that's at the state level but at the federal level so the under the previous administration the EPA at the request of local tribes in the area did an analysis of the pebble mine and said no it cannot coexist safely with the fishery that's there that's already generates billions of dollars and so when the administration's changed and Scott Pruitt was installed in his high level position. There was a meeting between uh, the Pebble folks and, hi- and him and basically said, not only is it back on, it's fast track. And we're gonna try and ram this thing through in the next four years come hell or high water. And so we're gonna disregard science. We're gonna, um, we're di- gonna disregard the voice of the people. Uh, I've said, I don't know how many hours of public testimony I've sat through uh, but it it shakes down to about eighty percent of Alaskans are opposed to this project, and we're 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 Alaskans. We're not opposed to development. We get we get our money from the oil industry, like mm-hmm. we we are not opposed to. I, I listen to these public comments, and you get up and and you talk. You got your three minutes, and then the guy after you gets up there, and he's a crusty Alaskan dude. He gets up there in his bunny boots and his coveralls and his you know dirty hat, and he says, "I've been an Alaskan for." 40 years, or, you know, fill in the high number there. And he says, I'm not opposed to development, but I am opposed to this project, and here's why. And it's usually revolving around fisheries. It's usually Alaskan identity, identity, native cultures. Like, this this w- is a direct threat to the Alaskan way of life. And we've got other mines that are, you know, smaller and, and less of a footprint, but this, the scale of this project is unprecedented in human history and the fact that it would go in under my watch is is not something i'm comfortable with and so i've i've really tried to back away from guiding like i can't do those long boat trips anymore i need to have email and things like that and i'm trying to position myself as more the uh the the sharp pointy end of the conservation stick right now, and I'm going to be going to. I've got my nonprofit, Friends of McNeil River, and we're partnered with World Wildlife Fund and uh, uh, National Parks Conservation Association and Cook Inlet Keeper, and and the list goes on and on and on. and uh, we're actually we're, we're going to Washington, D.C. at the beginning of next month. We've already got meetings set up with Lisa Murkowski and Dan Sullivan, the senators from Alaska, already, lo- and also looking to meet up with folks like Lindsey Graham and, and some of the power players in the Senate. It's going to be my job to go in and point out from, from a bear perspective, because we're, we're a relatively small cog in this wheel. But you know, if you look at the, the bear viewing industry in south-central Alaska, we, we generate about 500 jobs. We generate about $40 million a year and about 79% of that $40 million stays in South Central Alaska. You know, this is this is Alaskans making money for Alaskans. This is the stuff that gets spent on groceries. This is the stuff that gets spent on home improvements. This, these are the dollars that keep multiplying through our economy. And if you look at Homer, for example, we are, I don't mean to brag, but we are the halibut capital of the world. It says it right on the side. <laughs> self-proclaimed halibut capital of the world. If you look at the visitor's guide from 1980, it's got a giant halibut on it. If you look at the visitor's guide to Homer now, it's got a bear on the front. Like our tourist economy has diversified to the point that bear viewing is a major economic player. And if we want that to continue, we need to fight this horrible, horrible project that has no financial merits. It's got no science background and it's being... Forced on us from above. This is this is the first time I've always been somebody that just you know I'd be happy. You put me on a river, I'll go fishing. I'll go watch bears, whatever. But now I feel that there's a direct threat to the places I love, and one and two to my my livelihood. And it's really been I, I, I'm more active on Instagram than any other social media. But um, the, like the the support we've gotten is pretty remarkable people from all walks of light. I, I was just chatting with, a, there's a kid on Instagram, Tony Morrison. Uh, he takes some great, great photos, but I got an email from him or a message on Instagram saying, Hey, I just contacted my legislators and told them all about pebble Mine. Like, heck yeah. Like that's what it takes. The more people that, that, that realize that this is a threat. And then, I mean, I don't have to tell you guys, but, uh, picture says a thousand words like the photos that people get on the alaska peninsula bears things like that like those are the the testament those are the things that are that are going to win this fight and that's the role of uh, photographers in conservation is spreading the word you don't have to give away your secret spots but you know paint that broad picture that this place is worth saving so to all the listeners if watching bears on the alaska peninsula is on your bucket list and may you never reach the end of your bucket list may it just go in <laughs> endlessly. But if that's a priority for you, you you can't just sit back and you you need to fight to save
1: this. Yeah, you know, I, Wyoming is a lot like Alaska in that that's where people make their livelihood, right? The vast majority of people in in my part of the state are involved in natural resource development, either oil, coal, but it's responsible natural resources development. There's there are studies done, there are exceptions to where they can and can't work let's just for instance paint this into the lower 48 picture and say that you know the the grand teton held the biggest copper deposit in the lower 48 (laughs) would we allow would we allow someone to come in and develop a mine in grand teton national park and I think when, you know, people are are more familiar with the Tetons, and I don't think anybody would stand for that. There are places in this country that just need to stay wild. And I think that, you know, the McNeil River and that that whole ecosystem on the peninsula is one of those places. I mean, this isn't the only, you know, we talked to Garrett Venn. He discussed another project with us a little bit further out toward the Aleutians, and there are just places that need to stay wild, and the uh, ecotourism industry, I would think, would be an impetus for legislators to maintain that. And I hope that that's the case. And that's, you know, I don't, I don't want to turn this into a downer issue of wild and exposed. We've had some fun talking about bears, but I do think people need to be educated. And that's, I'm glad we got into this discussion for that reason, because I think people need to be educated as to what's going on and and how it's happening, not just that it's happening.
0: So I agree 100% on all that. What do people need to know? What can people, so you said if somebody puts this on their bucket list and they never get to their bucket list, that's probably reality for a lot of people, but they still have a passion for just knowing that this wild exists, right? There's got to be something in everybody's psyche that has got to know that we can't just destroy everything on this planet, hopefully. What can people that may never, ever touch foot, never, ever see a brown bear out there, what can they do? Or how, I guess, how do they educate themselves? And then what are those action steps? Is there something that's tangible? I mean, because I think a lot of people look at something like that and they're like, oh man, I, I'm just one person. I can't do any good. I'm not going to make a difference. And then nothing gets done, right? What, what's out there that we can put out there as a little roadmap or a little guide to say, if you just did this, this, and this, it would speak volumes to this audience.
2: Well, so thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> if you go to friendsofmcneilriver.org, and you click on the Pebble Mine navigational tab, um, there are a few things you can list on there. First off, uh, kind of the the fun thing you can do is I created a social media guide uh, for people who want to become involved. Whether or not you have your own pictures of brown bears from the Alaska Peninsula, it's got a list of hashtags and places where you can look to find more imagery of the Alaska peninsula and these bears specifically. Um, it's also got on there. Um, how do you contact the U S Senator from Alaska, Lisa Murkowski? And it, it's not just Lisa, because a lot of times she, like, if you're emailing her, she just takes emails from Alaskan, but this is still a federal issue because it's, it's currently, um, up until the middle of summer, it's It's in the hands of the Army Corps of Engineers. And so you can currently write to your own legislators. You can write to, if you've got a a House member that's on the uh, Infrastructure and Transportation Committee um, or just your senator in general, say, hey, this is something that is going through the Army Corps right now, and I don't like it. And even if they don't have a direct tie, like my goal is, is to put it on everybody's radar in the federal government. I want everybody in the federal government to know that something shady is going on and this is not going to stand. And so you can contact my legislature, you can contact your legislature, uh, legislators uh, on a federal level. And then there are are certain organizations that you can sign up. You can either go to the the defendbristolbay.org. And we'll have all this in the show notes for people. They don't need to frantically scribble this down. Um, Defend Bristol Bay, And you can sign up for the mailing list just because it's it's one of those things that, like right now we're trying to stop the federal permit. Well, if they get the federal permit, then they've got to get 17 state permits. And so the things that I am going to ask people to do are going to change over time. If you'd asked me that question a year ago, I would have said, Said, comment to the Army Corps of Engineers. Now I say, contact your legislature. Um, next week or next month, I'm going to say something different. And it, the system is set up like that to benefit Pebble. Like there is not just one thing you can do, and so you need to to follow the organizations. Fo- follow me on Instagram because I'm always when there's something new, it's it's going to be on there. And I look at we've got this kind of informal uh, group of, of photographers on and, and you know, the, the, th- the people that I uh, have reached out to through this fight, like the guy that really knocked it out of the, the park with his blog post was Art Wolf. You know, I got all the talking points to him. And frankly, check out Art Wolf's blog post on the subject. <laughs> And he tells you, contact Lisa Murkowski. He gives you all the the pertinence on everything. And because uh, Art's out there every year. He goes to Alaska, and you see him running around, <laughs> running around in the, pre- well, walking around in the preserve. Right. Uh, this group of folks on on Instagram that uh, hear when the, the Army Corps is going to release their environmental impact statement in hopefully June, a lot more, you go watch, like, Brad Joseph's video. He's big. He's a video guy. He's got all sorts of epic bear fights and stuff on there. And uh, Don Wilson, you know, she's going to be posting stuff. And we're going to we have uh, Greg Piper, Fiona Nixon, just all these people with these these fantastic bear photos are going to be ramping up a bear campaign. So pay attention to it we'll be we'll be given instruction whether it's contacts legislators whether it's whatever whatever it needs to be whatever the next step it will be apparent via that that Instagram channel or the friends of McNeil River.org.
1: and that's that's one of the reasons we wanted to kind of have you it's it's kind of a timely conversation people will have a couple of weeks when they hear your story take some of those action steps that Mike was talking about and we'll post links also on the show notes and some of the organizations that you were naming so they're You know, they're easily discovered on, you know, just through a Google search or like Drew said, you can find him on Instagram and and maintain some updates. So we'll definitely do that. And we hope that people will take some of those actions and and let some people know, you know, that we do need wild spaces.
0: It blows my mind because there's just so many organizations. We started doing a podcast 11 years ago, if you can believe it. We started way before podcasting was cool, but it was a, it was a fish fish podcast i had a, a friend that was totally into fishing and I got another buddy and they we were talking about the pale of a mine way back then and it's so you got these fishing organizations you've got hunting you've got outdoor recreational i mean it's so big and i think everybody would have well i'm obviously biased but there just got to be way more people against a project like this than for it and it's just getting that word out and having the masses tell people, this is not cool. Well,
2: that's, that's one of the challenges we've been facing with the, the bear aspect of it, because if you're a bear person, if you're a photographer that wants to photograph bears um, or just take solace in the fact that these wild places exist, this is, this is a new aspect of it for, for 20 years. It, it was fish, 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 fish. Cause the mind was all this theoretical, what if, what if, what if, and now that they've actually released their plan uh, air quotes for the folks listening <laughs> in their cars. Because um, the, the, the threat to McNeil River and the bears of the Alaska Peninsula didn't come, become apparent till two years ago. And so when, when the pebble fight that's been going on for so long, when it reared its ugly head again, you know, the folks that had been fighting for so long, they just put their heads down, put their extra tufts back on, and got back in the trenches using the same talking points. And so when this bear aspect came out, the first two uh, first two people I called were uh, uh, Dave Applin at World Wildlife Fund and uh, Ben Bressler at Natural Habitat Adventures that they operate bear tours along that coast. And I've done a lot of fun stuff with them. And to their credit, they both said, what do we what do we need to do? And the first thing like Ben chartered a plane so that I could set up a camp at the port site and have a CNN crew come out there like the, the people that have come out and just said, nope, we're not going to, nope. This is the line has been crossed. And then, uh, World Wildlife Fund, I couldn't do this fight without World Wildlife Fund. Um, you know, they're a, they're a flashy international organization, but everybody that has their boots on the ground that I've ever met with them is just top notch. And I, so, in that meeting, I said, well, look, I don't, I don't need to tell World Wildlife Fund that you need a bear. As your as your spokesperson here, we got them right here. Let's do this. So they they've just been the the people that have, have have risen to the occasion on this have just been so uh fantastic. It really it, it warms your heart. And there are times when you feel, you know, I've because I've just been down in Mexico trying to email lawyers and stuff like that. Oh, and I'm suing the federal government. Put that on my list of stuff I'd never thought i would do. <laughs> yeah, we're currently involved in a lawsuit against the EPA. Uh, you know, I'm just I'm just a guy who likes watching bears suddenly I'm emailing lawyers from hotel rooms in Mexico. And it's just been really complicated to try and keep track of all this, the moving pieces on this.
0: So you said your book that you're doing with Don, part of the proceeds are going to go to this organization, your organization. Is there, can people just donate directly? You can through the
2: website, you go there and you click on the, the button that says donate. Um, and that, that's fantastic. We, every, every dime right now is getting spent on pebble fights and, uh, but it's also sign up for the email list because that's, uh, that's where you get important information and that's what keeps you the most up to date. Also, we've got a film that's gonna be touring with the Wild and Scenic Film Festival, which is the largest traveling uh, film fest- wilderness film festival. So if you see it come into a theater near you, uh, be sure and go check it out. Make sure they're playing a back redo. Redux, it's French, I don't know, I don't speak French. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when you have a natural area that is so pristine, Can't we just have that? Can't we just... Everybody is very... Everybody protects their own little livelihood, right? And it can be misconstrued that, well, you're a photographer, you just want to photograph these bears for your own little personal enjoyment. That's true, for sure. But if I didn't ever photograph a bear for the rest of my life, and I just knew that there was a place that bears could be bears and do their thing and not be interrupted, that's... Is worth more to me than anything else. Mm-hmm.
2: And your choice of words there is very telling. Uh, the guy that Clem Tillian, uh, who was an Alaska state legislature in the 60s, 1967, when McNeil River was established, he's still around. He's in his 90s. He loves telling stories. You go over to Halibut Cove and he'll talk your ear off about everything, anything. Uh, but his quote was I just like the idea that there's a place where bears can be bears yeah and so he he created McNeil River. <laughs> we should talk about something fun to close with we We kind of took this this downer let's uh,
0: it's not a downer though that's i mean i I'm it's it good just, education it's yeah, yeah we gotta get the word out before we go. you wrote an article for our web page <laughs> on the stitching of and it's all it's been i've had it up there since you wrote it. oh, really? I just okay. didn't we wanted to get three or four or five in the queue so that we didn't put one out and then it just dies off. But since we're having you on the podcast, this is the perfect time to put it out there. Maybe you could just give a little heads up as to what's in that article and why people want to go check it out. Now we have all your images. We have your whole, everything you wrote is there. So it's going to be awesome uh, as far <laughs> as once they get there, but just give them a little idea of, cause you mentioned it earlier. We briefly touched on it, but, just give a little elevator speech on what, what they yeah. can find.
2: So, and I mentioned earlier, a lot of this stems from my shooting style and the fact that I only carry one lens at a time. And a lot of times it's that fixed lens. And since uh, we're not, uh, well, like when we go out and I'm the guide, I'm not necessarily setting up for my focal length. I'm setting up for what the group needs, right? And so that puts me at this 600 millimeter equivalent, oftentimes too close for the subject, if I wanted a little habitat or things like that. I think the the incident I described was when you had the ultimate situation where you've got polar bears crawling over a whale skull up on the, the Arctic coast, and you realize you're too close. And so one of the things that I really like about this Olympus system I have is that it's ridiculously fast. And in its fastest shooting rate, I can just – basically hold the button it locks the exposure it locks the the focus and then just pan with it you can pan up you can pan down and then in photoshop or lightroom you stitch them together and you'll you'll actually get like i can stitch bears walking um it's easier when they're sitting (laughs) but you can stitch moving animals and things like that and it's really like if you find yourself it's it's a workaround this is our pro tip i guess of the day
0: yeah there you Uh, go
2: it's a workaround if you find yourself with the wrong lens and you're just not quite set up around. And if you think about it and it happens just like that, you can be ready. And it also helps; it has helped me lighten my kit in that I don't have to carry or I don't have to fumble around with that second body. I don't have to switch lenses. If it's, if it's just a situation that I need to adapt to quickly and get that, that panorama um, or even just stitching two shots. You know, take a picture of the animal and the habitat next to it with a locked focus and exposure, and then you can create an image that has the the subject. It's got the habitat. Um, it just, it, I find it makes me more versatile and expands the uh, the range of my. Plus, you get all this resolution, so you can blow these images up to the size of a bus if you got a bus that
0: you're trying to put did a bear you, on the side. You of. want to wrap. <laughs> no, I think you end up with a much more compelling image. I, I mean you look at your article and when people go and look read this article and look at the pictures, I think that, you know, it's just something about stitching those images. You would never get that in the camera. Or if you did, it would be so wide it just I don't know. I think it's just the compression plays into it. It just it's much different than if you shot that with a fifty or an eighty. If you're shooting it with a 300 and you're stitching it, I think you just get a whole different image. It kind of gives it, I, I think, and uh, I
2: think it kind of gives it a medium format feel. Yes. Yeah.
0: And yeah, I
2: don't, and yes. whatever a medium format feel is, I leave that to you guys to yeah, I know figure what you're saying, it out. But, but, but I, it's different. I got it.
0: it is different. So
2: there's 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 the the there's my pro tip. What are your
0: pro tips? Oh man, I didn't come prepared. <laughs> yeah, we figured we'd have
1: we'd have plenty to talk about with you.
0: Okay. yeah we'll 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 get on the next one i'll have one right we'll do a pro tip in the field with bears out in front of us when we do that podcast in july that'll be awesome (laughs) because there's so many little things that you got to know when you're out there that you need to have or need to pay attention to we can have a blast doing that maybe we could even get two podcasts while we're out there
2: there we go one on the
0: getting rid of the pebble mine and the other one just on bear photography
2: there we go make sure the eyes are in focus
0: yeah, that's go. that's <laughs> yeah. important. Drew, before we let you go, can you give us your Instagram handle and then some of the other places people can find you on the internet?
2: Yeah. Um Drew HH on Instagram, DrewHH.com on the World Wide Web. Um and then my nonprofit is Friends of McNeil River, and that's friends of dot org. And uh actually just googling <laughs> Drew Hamilton, Alaska Brown Bear. Uh, pops up a bunch of the, the videos and the viral video we were talking about before. Hmm. Everybody should watch it a bunch of times. So I get a nickel.
0: One last thing <laughs> nice. that we should throw in there too. If people wanted to go on a bear viewing trip with you, how do they do that? For, for bear viewing, for brown
2: bear viewing, um, it is, uh, go see AK adventures. You'll get, uh, it's my partner, Dave Backrack and I, uh, uh, are AK adventures for polar bear adventures. Uh, it's discover Churchill dot com and so you'll you'll get to talk to my buddy alex devries and churchill and he's probably freezing his butt off watching aurora right now so he'll get back to you when he thaws out and then uh the Monarch butterflies is at Nathab.com. well thank you so much for having me guys today this is uh, oh, thank this you and i listen to you guys all the time and it is really it's just like sitting around with my buds talking talking cameras talking bears it's uh it's really really been a good time
1: yeah it's always fun to dig into somebody else's world for a while it takes me away from mine which is at the moment not very exciting <laughs>
2: <laughs> hmm. well come up to alaska catch catch some winter yeah always
0: soon gonna do it thanks drew all right talk to you guys later you've been listening to the wild and exposed podcast thanks for tuning in we got our windows down
2: driving down the 405 sing along to the Gonna make it someday nothing's gonna get in our way we
0: will be the biggest band in time